welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Life-threatening complications arise after ingestion of ethylene glycol, a common ingredient found in automotive antifreeze. Recognizing toxicity related to ethylene glycol can be difficult as laboratory values mimic metabolic acidosis and confirmatory labs are expensive and often require sendouts to other labs. In suspected cases of ingestion, prompt initiation of treatment with femepazole or ethanol aids in inhibiting alcohol dehydrogenase and decreases adverse effects such as acute kidney injury or death. Today, Dr. Cameron Storm will review a case-based presentation and review recognition of ethylene glycol ingestion and optimal selection of pharmacotherapy regimens. In 2021, the American Association of Poison Control Centers reported over 5,000 ethylene glycol ingestions. Ethylene glycol is commonly found in many household products. This includes a clear, colorless, odorless, sweet tasting solution. And due to the sweetness, many products are required to, other, to add other substances to make their product have an unfavorable flavor. Antifreeze is one of the most common products containing ethylene glycol, which has a bitter taste. Other products include car wash fluids, pesticides, herbicides, coolants, or shoe polishes. However, this is not an all-inclusive list. Ethylene glycol is one of the toxic alcohols. Toxic alcohols are defined as any alcohol that is not intended to be ingested. Some toxic alcohols include methanol, acetone, isopropanol, along with ethylene glycol, and a variety of others. Methanol is commonly found in varnishes, acetone in fingernail polish remover, and isopropyl alcohol is commonly found in our hand sanitizers. The two most common toxic alcohols ingested are methanol and ethylene glycol. Our objectives today are to identify clinical findings of ethylene glycol toxicity, outline the mechanism of toxicity for ethylene glycol, and select treatment regimens for suspected ethylene glycol toxicity. First, we will discuss how patients present after ingestion of ethylene glycol. So we have a patient that has presented to the emergency department with reported alcohol intoxication. This patient is slurring their words, they are stumbling, they're not cooperative, and they appear intoxicated. After being roomed, this patient has re refused all care, including laboratory work. The provider is going to allow this patient some time to rest and leaves the room after performing an initial assessment. Patient symptoms are heavily based on time since ingestion, where there are three phases, neurological, cardiopulmonary, and renal. Within the first few minutes to several hours, 
Patients will experience neurologic symptoms, including headache, dizziness, euphoria, abdominal pain, vomiting, or altered mental status. These patients will have a general intoxication appearance. Later, about 12 to 24 hours, the cardiopulmonary phase begins with a hallmark symptom of acidosis, along with symptoms of hyperpenia, pulmonary edema, and hemodynamic instability. As time progresses, we will later see acute renal failure. As aforementioned, presentation may be similar to alcohol intoxication. This makes the diagnosis of ethylene glycol ingestions extremely difficult. Their mental status may be altered along with CNS depression. Likely obtaining an accurate patient history will be difficult to obtain along with what they ingested, how long ago they ingested it, and how much they have ingested. It is also important to try to discuss with the patient if they have consumed any alcohol as this co-ingestion will make a difference in our treatment and treatment dosing later on. So this leads us to our first polling question. Please submit your answers to Poll Everywhere. Which of the following symptoms is not associated with ethylene glycol toxicity? A, visual abnormalities, B, metabolic acidosis, C, an intoxication presentation, or D, acute renal failure? All right, it looks like the majority has it with visual abnormalities, as this is commonly seen with another toxic alcohol of methanol. We mentioned in that second phase of acute toxicity that acidosis is present, along with patients presenting with intoxication symptoms and later resulting in acute renal failure. So returning to our patient case, after we have given them some time to rest, our nurse is returning to their room to check their vitals. They find that the patient is now somnolent and not responding to stimuli, but has remained hemodynamically stable. This prompts a laboratory workup to be initiated. The only way to confirm ingestion of ethylene glycol is to attain serum levels. A volatile alcohol lab panel may be ordered to include a variety of toxic alcohol confirmation. This includes acetone, methanol, isopropanol, ethanol, along with ethylene glycol. Flame or gas liquid chromography, along with flame ionization detection, are the two most common lab values and are considered the gold standard to detect ethylene glycol intoxication. These labs are not ran at all facilities, and you should check with your laboratory to see if it is ran in-house or if this needs to be sent off to a larger institution. If it needs to be sent out, lab results will be delayed. Severe toxicity is considered when these levels return at greater than 25 milligrams per deciliter. Ethylene glycol impacts a multiple other labs as it is being metabolized to other toxic metabolites. Serum osmolality will be increased due to the low molecular mass of ethylene glycol which leads to an increased molar concentration and increasing the serum osmolality. A normal serum osmolality is 275 to 295 milliosmoles per kilogram. 
Serum creatinine is also important to note. As ethylene glycol is metabolized, more toxic metabolites will deposit within the kidneys, leading to increased renal failure, which will increase the serum creatinine over time. Along with serum osmolality and creatinine, an osmol gap and anion gap are important to calculate. Normal osmol gaps are between 10 to 20 milliosmoles per kilogram. When toxic alcohols are ingested, this gap will increase depending on the molecular weight of the substance. In cases of ethylene glycol ingestion, the gap increases significantly and quickly due to the ethylene glycol's low molecular weight. This increase will be seen initially, but as it is metabolized, it will decrease, as shown here in the blue line. Studies have shown that osmol gaps may not be as useful as we once thought. This is due to no standardization with low sensitivity and specificity of this osmol gap. And some would argue that an anion gap is more important, even though, again, it is not specific to ethylene glycol ingestions. When ethylene glycol is metabolized, it produces more organic acids, like glycolic and glyoxalic acid. This, this will produce an increased anion gap. One other factor to consider is co-ingestion with ethanol, as this will delay the metabolism of ethylene glycol, which then delays the increased anion gap. It's important to be able to calculate these gaps if your lab does not provide them to you. An osmol gap is measuring the unmeasured solutes that are found within the blood. And this is calculated by subtracting the measured osmolality from the calculated osmolality. To calculate the osmolality, you will need sodium, glucose, BUN, and ethanol levels. Moving on to our anion gap, this is measure, measuring the differences between our positively charged molecules like sodium from our negatively charged molecules of chloride and bicarbonate. Our normal anion gap is around approximately 12 milliequivalents per liter. To fully understand these laboratory levels, it is important to understand the metabolism of ethylene glycol. This occurs in the liver and will lead to more toxic metabolites than the parent toxic alcohol. Starting with its first step of metabolism is the enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase. And this is where we will focus our treatment regimens on. Further down the road, we will see cofactors such as pyridoxine and thiamine being used to metabolize glycolic acid and glyoxalic acid, which are toxic metabolites to glycine and ketoapatate, which are non-toxic metabolites. Once metabolized to glycolic acid and glyoxalic acid, these two are structurally similar to lactic acid, which may falsely elevate our lactic levels. And finally, once we reach oxalic acid, this toxic metabolite combines with calcium to produce calcium oxalate crystals that deposit within the brain, heart, lungs, and kidneys. We have reached our second polling question. Please, please support, submit your responses to poll everywhere. Lactic acid can be falsely elevated due to which toxic metabolite? A, ethylene glycol, B, glycolic acid, 
C, oxalic acid, or D, glycine. All right, so our correct answer here is glycolic acid. Ethylene glycol is our parent toxic alcohol. Oxalic acid forms compounds with calcium to make calcium oxalate crystals that deposit within the kidneys, leading to renal failure. And glycine is a non-toxic metabolite. Glycolic acid and glyoxalic acid are the two toxic metabolites that are structurally similar to lactate, elevating our lactate level. So returning to our patient case, labs have returned, and based off of this previous discussion, we conclude that a toxic alcohol was recently ingested. We see that this patient has severe acidosis with a pH of less than 6.8. The anion gap has been unable to be calculated and the lactate, osmolality, and osmol gap are all elevated. It's also important to note that the ethanol is less than 10, indicating there was no co-ingestion with alcohol and the baseline serum creatinine is 0.98. After results of these labs, a toxic alcohol panel was drawn and sent off to an outlying facility. So with this knowledge that the patient has likely indicated has consumed a toxic alcohol, what medications do you recommend to initiate? Please submit your answers to poll everywhere. This is a short answer response. Dialysis, charcoal, ethanol, omeprazole, Everclear, gentamethasone. Great. So after confirming suspicion for ingestion of a toxic alcohol, treatment should be initiated as soon as possible. So just returning back to our previous discussion, ethylene glycol and methanol are both toxic alcohols. And they are both metabolized by the enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase in that first step of metabolism. But as you can see, ethanol is also metabolized by alcohol dehydrogenase. Due to this, Methanol and ethylene glycol have very similar treatment options, and this also makes ethanol part of this treatment option. Tre treatment criteria includes the following. A known ethylene glycol serum level that is greater than 20 milligrams per deciliter. This will depend on where your serum ethylene glycol levels are tested and if it's available in-house or if it needs to be sent off to a larger institution or if your patient has documentation of the ingestion with a serum osmol gap that is greater than 10. Or in the case of our patient, they are severely acidotic with a pH that is less than 7.3, a bicarbonate level that is less than 20, and a serum osmol gap that is greater than 10. All three of these would indicate initiation of treatment as soon as possible. Our two main treatment regimens will focus on that first step of metabolism of alcohol dehydrogenase. If we can prevent further metabolism of the ethylene glycol, this will stop the toxic metabolites of glycolic acid, glyoxalic acid, and oxalic acid from being formed. The drug of choice for the treatment of ethylene glycol ingestions is flumethazole. This is a competitive inhibitor of alcohol dehydrogenates and is only available as an IV. This does have some complicated dosing to it though. 
There's a loading dose of 15 milligrams per kilogram for all patients. This is followed by 10 milligrams per kilogram every 12 hours for four doses. Then we increase the dose to 15 milligrams per kilogram for every 12 hours. This is due to fomepazole inducing its own metabolism. Later, we can discontinue fomepazole once our serum ethylene glycol levels have returned at less than 20 milligrams per deciliter. Overall, fomepazole is well tolerated with minimal side effects. So now, just a side note for a patient case, you are a pharmacist at an outlying critical access hospital, and you have a patient that presents with ingestion of ethylene glycol. Due to your hospital being a critical access, you do not carry any fomepazole, but this patient is needing treatment. The emergency department provider is asking you if you have any hard alcohol within your pharmacy, to which you have found a bottle of whiskey. Later, you will need to dose this for your patient. So just looking at a few Fomepazole administration pearls, the dose is one gram per milliliter of solution. This is available as a 1.5 milliliter vial that is administered as an IV piggyback and sodium chloride or 5% dextrose. Your infusion rate is over 30 minutes and it does not require any monitoring requirements. The average wholesale price is over $1,000 for one vial. Fomepazole for the treatment of ethylene glycol was performed as a prospective study from 1995 to 1997, where they had 19 patients that had ingested ethylene glycol with an average plasma level of 123 milligrams per deciliter. The primary outcome was, to development, was the development of renal injury, increase in ethylene glycol metabolites, or the development of cranial neuropathies. The results showed that nine patients had renal injury and 17 utilized dialysis for treatment. These nine patients may have had renal injury due to the severity of their ethylene glycol ingestion or, to a, or due to a delay in treatment. Pomepazole has also been studied for the treatment of methanol. This was a prospective multi-center trial from 1995 to 1997, where they had 11 patients with severe visual deficits. The primary outcome was preservation of site, inhibition of formic acid production, and resolution of metabolic acidosis. As a result, all patients had baseline visual acuity return, and seven utilized hemodialysis. Now to transition to our alternative therapy of ethanol. This is to only be utilized when fomepazole is not available. It is similar to fomepazole as it is a competitive inhibitor of alcohol dehydrogenase. It is available as an IV or oral option, or most commonly we use oral. We monitor serum levels with a goal of 100 to 150 milligrams per deciliter. This is monitored every one to two hours to ensure efficacy and safety. It is important to know what your patient's current ethanol level is and what their patient history is of alcohol consumption, as this will impact our loading dose and maintenance doses. Adverse effects include sedation, hypoglycemia, and nausea, 
as well as these patients may appear generally intoxicated. So now returning to our dosing case, you have found a bottle of whiskey that's 80 proof, and you now need to dose this for your patient that does not use alcohol at home and their current ethanol level is less than 10. You find that your loading dose will be two milliliters per kilogram, which can be diluted in six ounces of juice and consumed over 30 minutes. Your maintenance dose will be 0.2 milliliters per kilogram per hour. Don't forget to order your monitoring parameters to keep your serum level between 100 and 150 milligrams per deciliter. This will ensure efficacy and safety. The safety of ethanol infusions was studied as a retrospective study from 1999 to 2009. They had 15 patients that ingested methanol and 32 that ingested ethylene glycol. The primary outcome was occurrences of any adverse event, where they found that the majority of patients had an adverse event, event with the most common being agitation and tachycardia. So to compare our two treatment regimens, fomepazole requires a loading dose for all patients with minimal side effects and no monitoring requirements. And it is only available as an IV. Ethanol may or may not require a loading dose depending on your patient's history and current ethanol level. This will also impact your maintenance dose. It has similar side effects to intoxication to which your patient needs to be monitored and requires frequent monitoring for safety and efficacy. There is an IV or oral option, but oral is more often utilized and it is relatively inexpensive when compared to fomepazole. Both of these are competitive inhibitors of alcohol dehydrogenase, have IV formulations available, and are discontinued when serum levels are less than 20 milligrams per deciliter. So after establishing treatment with fomepazole or ethanol, dialysis is an additional therapy that may need to be considered. It will assist with removal of ethylene glycol and its toxic metabolites. It is indicated when serum ethylene glycol levels are greater than 50 milligrams per deciliter, the patient is severely acidotic with a pH of less than 7.25, they are hemodynamically unstable or have developed renal failure. Dose adjustments will be needed for both bomepazole and ethanol. And this will depend on the type of dialysis along with how long dialysis will be ran for. It is recommended to reach out to your local toxicologist or poison control center to assist with dosing. Dialysis may be discontinued when acidosis resolves or when serum ethylene glycol levels are resulted to less than 20 milligrams per deciliter. However, as our previous studies have shown, depending on the severity of the ethylene glycol ingestion, dialysis may need to be continued outpatient. So returning to our patient case, after the suspicion of a toxic alcohol consumption and severe acidosis, fomepazole and dialysis were initiated. The following morning, these labs have returned with slight improvement. As we can see, the pH has slightly increased to 7.22. We can now calculate an anion gap at 31 and lactate has slightly decreased to 11.6. It is also important to note that the serum creatinine 
is stable at 0.98. To further emphasize renal injury with the ingestion of ethylene glycol, you can see that the patient had a slow increase in serum creatinine. As we have discussed, renal injury is one of the last symptoms to occur. Even with a quick action to initiate treatment, this patient still resulted with renal injury. On the day of admission, the creatinine was 0.98 and continuous renal replacement therapy was ran over 24 hours through day two. On day three, hemodialysis was initiated and at discharge, the patient's serum creatinine was noted to be 3.36 and they were discharged with hemodialysis three times weekly. Later in the hospital course, serum ethylene glycol results had returned. It was found on the day of admission, they had severe ethylene glycol ingestion with a level of 158 milligrams per deciliter. On the next morning, this level had decreased to 58 milligrams per deciliter with initiation of dialysis and flumepazole. By the second morning, this level was less than 20. Due to this level needing to be sent out to an outlying facility, these levels took a while to return and flumepazole was continued for a total of five days. So what other adjunct medication therapy should we administer to this patient? Please submit your short answers to poll everywhere. Thiamine, or thiamine, fluids, pyridoxine, both thiamine and pyridoxine, folic acid, more pyridoxine. Great. So additional therapy does include thiamine. Thiamine is most commonly used in patients with alcohol intoxication to prevent Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. Thiamine and ethylene glycol metabolism is a required cofactor to help metabolize glycolic acid, a toxic metabolite, to the non-toxic metabolite ketoaptate. It is recommended to administer 100 milligrams IV or IM every six hours. Along with pyridoxine, it is very similar to thiamine where it is a cofactor for amino transferase. This helps metabolize glyoxalic acid, again, a toxic metabolite to the non-toxic metabolite of glycine. It is recommended to administer 50 milligrams IV every six hours. Other adjunct therapy includes sodium bicarbonate and calcium. Sodium bicarbonate is commonly used for severely acidotic patients, and in this case, when a pH is less than 7.3. This can be continued until the acidosis has resolved. In these patients, hypocalcemia will often occur. This is due to the calcium oxalate crystals forming, forming and depositing within the kidneys, along with the brain, heart, and lungs. It is not recommended to replace calcium as this could further insult or injury. So this is our last polling question. Which of the following is an inhibitor of alcohol dehydrogenase? A, fomepazole, B, thiamine, C, pyridoxine, or D, methanol. Great, the correct answer is A, fomepazole. Both fomepazole and ethanol are inhibitors of alcohol dehydrogenase. 
where ethanol is only used as an alternative agent when fomepazole is not available. Both thiamine and pyridoxine are cofactors used to metabolize the toxic metabolites, glycolic acid and glyoxalic acid to the non-toxic metabolites. And methanol is another commonly ingested toxic alcohol. To fully summarize our patient case, they presented as intoxicated and initially refused care. After a while, a nurse found them somnolent and labs were initiated. Labs returned with severe acidosis, an increased osmol gap, and an unable to be calculated anion gap. This resulted to initiate a toxic alcohol panel, which was sent off to an outlying facility. While waiting for those results to return, treatment with fomepazole and continuous renal replacement therapy was initiated, along with thiamine, pyridoxine, and sodium bicarbonate. Later, we found that the serum ethylene glycol level at admission was 158 milligrams per deciliter. And five days later, we found out that this level had reached less than 20. Therefore, fomepazole was discontinued and dialysis was transitioned to hemodialysis where the patient was later discharged on outpatient hemodialysis three times weekly. So with patients that ingest ethylene glycol, it is hard to differentiate between general intoxication symptoms from symptoms of ethylene glycol ingestion. Labs will show an increased serum osmolality, an increased osmol gap, an increased anion gap, and an increased serum creatinine. These labs will differentiate throughout the time of metabolism where the osmol gap will decrease quickly as ethylene glycol is metabolized, and the serum creatinine and anion gap will continue to increase. The only way to detect ethylene glycol ingestion is with serum levels. Again, reach out to your local lab to see if these levels are ran within your institution or required to be sent out. The drug of choice for the treatment of ethylene glycol ingestions is fomepazole, with the alternative agent being ethanol only when fomepazole is not available. Adjunct agents include sodium bicarbonate, thiamine, pyridoxine, and calcium. Sodium bicarbonate is used for the acidosis. Thiamine and pyridoxine are both cofactors for metabolism. And calcium is likely not to be administered due to the increase of calcium oxalate crystals that form and will deposit within the kidneys, ultimately resulting in renal injury. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.